The Christmas stories, um, you know, it's, it's sort of a cliche for preachers at Christmas to moan about Christmas. They moan about consumption, they moan about this, they moan about that. But actually, people are absolutely right to celebrate. My biggest concern about Christmas, though, the Christmas that we celebrate in our culture, is not the consumption, it's not the feasting, it's not the partying. My biggest concern is actually that we take the story of the baby Jesus and we rip it out of context and we will end up one day with a generation of people who go, I wonder what happened to that baby? I wonder what happened to him? We've got the story of the baby and, 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 the, and, and schools will continue and nativities and, you know, with all that sort of stuff. But it'd be like, well, what happened to him? And for those of us who follow Jesus, for those of us who are trying to live out as disciples of his, um, the Christmas story, of course, is in the cycle of stories of who is this Jesus? And more particularly, what does this Jesus say about God? So this morning, what I wanted to do is just pull the lens back a little bit for a moment or two and ask the question, really, what sort of God does this sort of thing? What sort of God? What does the Christmas story, the nativity story, what does it tell us about God? What sort of God does this sort of thing? If you have a Bible with you, I'm going to be reading briefly. Um, I'm going to be tucking into, uh, uh, dipping into, I think is the word I was looking for, as opposed to tucking into, um, uh, Matthew chapter 2 and Luke chapter 1 and 2. So if you've got a Bible, uh, that's where we're going to be looking at. But really, I, I do want to do this thing of just stepping back for a minute and going, what does the Christmas story about tell us about the God who we are worshipping this morning. And the first thing I want to say is it tells us that God is a disruptive God. God disrupts things. If you look at chapter 1 of Luke's Gospel and verse 26, uh, you have the beginning of the birth of Jesus being foretold to Mary. This is how it begins. In the sixth month of Elizabeth's pregnancy, God sent the angel Gabriel to Nazareth, a town in Galilee, to a virgin pledged to be married to a man named Joseph, a descendant of David. The virgin's name was Mary, and the angel went to her and said, Greetings, you who are highly favoured. The Lord is with you. And Mary was greatly troubled at his words and wondered what kind of greeting this might be. It's an interesting way that Luke sets it up. Firstly, it's very specific. It's at a certain time to a certain people who belong to a certain place and they have certain plans. They're pledged to be married. They have a plan. And the angel the angel comes to Mary and says, Greetings, you are highly favoured. The Lord's with you. And Mary is troubled because she wonders, what sort, of, what, sort of, what sort of greeting is this? And in a sense, Mary is right to be troubled. Because from this moment on, her life will never be the same again. God totally disrupts her life. She has a plan. She has 
her ideas of what her life is going to be like. She's pledged to Joseph. It's going to, they're going to get married. They're in a little village. They're in the back end of beyond. They're going to make their life together. They've got their plan. And God breaks in. God breaks in. Keep your fingers in there, but if you can, go to Matthew 2. And Matthew 2 begins uh, after the birth of Jesus. After Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea, during the time of King Herod, magi, wise men, stargazers from the east came to Jerusalem and they asked, where is the one who's been born King of the Jews? We saw his star when it rose and we've come to worship him. When King Herod heard this, he was disturbed and all Jerusalem with him. Mary's wondering what's God doing because she's got her own plan for her own personal life. Herod's concerned and disturbed because he's in power. And actually, he recognises that what he's got to do is stop any other claim on his power. If you're the king, you don't want to hear that another king has been born. And so you're, you are troubled. God disrupts. He disrupts shepherds. He disrupts magi. He does it through dreams, through stars, through angels. And whenever angels come, they always begin by saying, don't be afraid. Because you would be stupid not to be afraid. <laughs> it's like when an angel comes to you, you know this is not necessarily someone who's going to say, oh, bless you, doing ever so well. When you meet God, God disrupts. And God says, I know you've got your plans, but I've got a bigger one. And it means change and it's disruptive because we all find it difficult to imagine a different future. If we had time and we had the ability and we just sat down and said, what, what's your plans? Tell us your plans. What, do you, what are you hoping for? What do you think, how do you think things are going to roll out over the next few years? What are your big hopes? What are your big ambitions what do you really love to see or even even if you've not got that sort of answer what do you think it's going to be like and you'd have an idea but the god that we worship from time to time steps in and says let me have a word because actually i want to do something new it's hard to imagine a different future. And so we believe that things will always be the same as they are now. But we worship a God who steps in and says, the story's not fixed. It's not fixed in the way you think it's fixed. Either good or bad, some of you have got brilliant plans for yourself. And some of you are fearful because you think, I don't know if I could cope if life's always going to be like this. And God steps in and goes, actually, let me have a word. It's a disruptive God. It's an unstoppable God. God works in the story in impossible situations. The two birth stories, because of course when we tell the story of Christmas from Luke's gospel certainly, you have two births. You have Elizabeth and Zechariah, and they're old, they're past childbearing age. And they've longed for a child all of their lives, but they've never been able to have a child of their own. 
And when Zechariah, who's a priest, he's on duty one day doing his priestly stuff, and, and it's not that necessarily important, but it would be as though, if you imagine that this is kind of like the temple, from that pillar there to that pillar there, there'd be a massive heavy curtain. And in a sense, the mysterious stuff's going on on the other side of the curtain, and you're that side of the curtain. And Zechariah would be the one who would be allowed to go into the holy of the holy place. And when he's there, he has a visitation from God, and God says, I've got news for you, Zechariah. Your wife is going to have a child. And Zechariah says, how's that going to happen? Because I'm old and she's past it. That's kind of like the message version. <laughs> and isn't it interesting that there you have someone who's spent all of his life, he's a priest, he's spent all of his life around God's stuff. He's been doing it for others, he's been telling other people about it, but actually it's easy to do it all and be here every week and do the worship, but actually be the same and go, yeah, but that sort of stuff doesn't really happen, not in difficult situations. You've got old people who are barren, and you have young people who are virgins. And God moves in to this story. Now, those of you that know the Old Testament, you know that the Old Testament story always really seems to be that God works in barren situations. It's like, how many times you read the Old Testament and do you have people who can't have children being told at the last minute, you're going to be pregnant? You've got Abraham, you've got Hannah, you've got all these people all the way through who they shouldn't be able to have children, but they do. Why? It's not because actually of the personal pain. And sometimes, you know, some, when, when, you, when you want to have children, you can't have children. It's awful because you sort of feel this real pain inside. But it's more than that. It's more than personal pain. The big deal was this. If you, to the people of God, if you don't have the family, then the story dies with your generation. And so the Old Testament thing was always, well, will the promise fail? And God steps in and goes to barren people who say, I'm empty, I've got nothing, the story will finish. God steps in and says, this impossibility is not the end. And the story of Jesus that we know and we celebrate, the, two big, the big story of Jesus is framed by two impossibilities. The first impossibility is that virgins don't give birth. The final impossibility is dead men stay dead. Virgin birth and resurrection are the brackets of the story that we live in. We believe in a God who says, out of nothing I can bring something. We believe in a God who comes in human form, and he comes to people who are mentally tortured and says, actually, I can put you back together again. He comes to people who are sick and says, actually, I can start again. You can be healed. He comes to parents who are absolutely terrified because of what their children are going through, and he heals the children so the parents get rest. God says, this impossibility is not the final one. 
And the wonder of Christmas is that it ends with the wonder of Easter. Where resurrection happens and death doesn't get the final word. Barrenness doesn't get the final word. God is unstoppable. He's a humble God. It may seem obvious, but this miracle-working God comes as a human in fragile circumstance. Babies are helpless. And (laughs) (laughs) though they do make themselves known from time to time. This Christmas, in some media somewhere around the world, there will be a story that will go like this. Someone, some reporter will tell you this story. A baby has been found, left. At a hospital or at a children's home. Because that story happens every year. It's a tragic story. Every year it's a tragic story. Because someone says, I can't cope. And the world, the reason that becomes a story is not because we've never heard it before. We've heard it every year we've been alive. The reason it is, is because all of us around the world goes, that child has no chance because that child is helpless. And God enters the world as a baby. And we know the odds of that story ending well are minimal. We live in the most, at the most sophisticated age, at the most sophisticated time that we've ever lived at. And all of us who've been around babies know when you see a baby, you are anxious that all's well. We're surrounded by medical care that our ancestors could not even dream of. But every baby that's born is like, I hope we're going to be okay. God comes in frailty and humility. God comes, and the technical term is, God comes in the incarnation. God takes on flesh. There's hundreds of children out there at the moment, or at least it'll feel like that right now. And at coffee time, they'll be milling around you. And when you speak to them, and I hope you do speak to them, when you speak to them, Instinctively, most of you will do this. Except you two, obviously. (laughs) 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 To you two, the children will be (laughs) looking down on us. Like Peyton will be looking down on us. But (laughs) in most cases, we go like that. Why do we do that? Well, it's obvious why we do it. Because actually, we want to, we want to look in their eye. We want to speak to them, and we want them to know that actually they're really important right now. And so we come to their level to speak to them in ways that they can grasp. That's incarnation. You come close to their world. God comes to us. God becomes small to look us in the eye. Last week, Muna um, was, uh, Muna, this is Muna. Every week I'm now going to just embarrass Muna, I think. But last week, Muna spoke about why she came to church, why she came to this church. Muna's been part of our church for less than a year, but she came. And Muna said this last week to us who were here. 
She said, I'd passed your notice board for a couple of years and I saw the word Pentecostal and I didn't know what Pentecostal meant and I was a little surprised, a, a little nervous about what that might be. She said, so when I heard that this time last year you were on the duchy and you were going to be there, she said, I came down to meet you to see what you'd really be like. Now, fortunately, she didn't meet any of us and so she thought we were okay. <laughs> But what Moon is saying is, I don't need a message on a board. I need to meet you. Because if I look you in the eye and I touch you and I listen to you and you listen to me, then actually we build a relationship. God is a humble God who knows it's not enough to send a message from heaven. He has to come down and get on eye level with us. He's a humble God. He's a patient God. This is really obvious. When the angel announces to Mary that Mary's going to be with child and, and she's going to be pregnant, and there's nine months from that announcement to Mary giving birth. It's just an obvious point. And from when Jesus is born and the stories we tell to the time when he's baptized, that's 30 years. And God doesn't seem to be in an awful hurry. God works at human pace in human history. This is not what some of us want to hear. We want to hear that God's a fast God who does things that are clicker for fingers and everything changes overnight and transformation. And when we get into difficulties, that's what we want to hear. But the God we worship is a patient God who seems willing to work with people, not overpowering them. A patient God who walks with us at his pace. And then finally, he's a welcoming God. If you go back to Matthew chapter 12, uh, 2, look there again and look at verse 11. You've got these really strange people called the Magi. And Matthew says the first people who came, or amongst the first people who came to visit Jesus, were these Magi, these astrologers. Um, those of you that have been around the Bible a little bit, you might remember in the story of Daniel. When Daniel was in Babylon, um, he became part of the court of the king. And the king had dreams, and then he would call his wise men, his Magi, to come and interpret his dream. And those Magi couldn't, but Daniel could. When uh, Daniel is in exile and the king has that weird apparition on the wall with the writing, his wise men, his Magi, the king's Magi, couldn't make out what it meant, but Daniel could. These Magi who come from the east... They don't know about Jehovah, really. They don't know about the God of the Old Testament. They belong to Babylon. They belong outside of the faith. But they come, and they find out. They, they follow this star from their charts. They come to the house, and in verse 11, <laughs> on coming to the house, they saw the child with his mother Mary, and they bowed down, 
and worshipped him. And it is an obvious point, but when Matthew's writing his gospel, do you remember how Matthew ends his gospel? At chapter 28 at the end, therefore, go into, as you go into all of the world, preach the gospel, teach them how to be obedient to my words, for I will be with you to the ends of the earth forever. Matthew begins his gospel by saying, who were the first people who worshipped? They were the last people you'd expect. The first people who worshipped were the last people you'd expect. They weren't Jewish. They weren't righteous. They weren't religious in that sense. They were outsiders and they worshipped. They're not one of us. They're pagans. But they're welcome to worship. We don't have a midnight service on Christmas Eve, but I was listening to um, radio this morning and they were talking about, um, you know, midnight services are really sort of like, apparently they're really popular on Christmas Eve now. But lots of churches have bouncers to stop people coming in who've perhaps celebrated a little too much before the service begins. <laughs> I love the idea of people outside. I'm thinking of trying next. You, you can't come in, sorry. You <laughs> sober up, you go to the coffee lounge first. This Christmas... There will be, there will be people who will go to church drunk. And they're not there because they feel the impulse of the spirit. They're there because, well, it's a thing to do. And Matthew would say, you're welcome. You're really welcome. You're not one of us, Matthew says, but you're really welcome. Oh, and by the by, Luke, of course, he does exactly the same. Who are the first people who come? Well, let's go back to Luke chapter 2. And verse 17, you know the story of the shepherds. The shepherds come. Verse 16, they hurry off. They find Mary and Joseph and the baby who's lying in the manger, the feeding trough. And when they'd seen him, what did the shepherds do? They spread the word concerning what had been told them about this child. And all who heard it were amazed at what the shepherds said to them. The Magi come and they worship. The shepherds become the first evangelists. Because what are they saying? Well, the news is this, verse 10. The angels have said to them, don't be afraid. I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. Today, in the town of David, a saviour has been born to you. He's the Messiah, the Lord. This will be a sign to you. You'll find a baby wrapped in cloths and lying in a manger. And Luke says, when the shepherds come, and, and you know, I, we say on the, on the little film you'll have seen, if you've watched the nativity that we, we made, we say about the shepherds that they were, they were often uh, thought to be disreputable. People did look down on them. They couldn't belong. You see, the reason was they couldn't get to the temple. They couldn't be clean. So people used shepherds, but the shepherds were kind of like, they were probably Jewish, but they were outside of the, they were kind of like, they, they you know, they would have been looked down on. And there was a reputation that shepherds were, because they were outsiders, um, there was a reputation that they would steal off those who were insiders. If you feel like you're an outsider, you feel like the whole world's against you, so you can take what you want. And that was a reputation that shepherds often had. But Luke says, the first evangelists 
were shepherds. The last people you'd expect. Because they'd heard the angel say, there's a new king in town. This is the welcome that our God gives to people like us and to people who are not like us. And this is the response from people who don't have it all together, who don't understand everything, who don't tick all the boxes, come and worship. Come and worship. You might sit some days in church and go, I, I, I'm not like anybody else here. Come and worship. You might sit in church and go, I'm not the same as them. Come and worship. Because the welcome is to people like you. And then, having worshipped, go and tell. Go and tell people, actually, this is better news than you could ever have imagined. Things could change in such a big way for you. Go tell. Having experienced it for yourself. This is the good news. Things don't need to stay the same. It's not just a lovely story, that this, but this child will grow and this child will be executed. This child will be raised from the dead. This child is the Lord of the whole world. This is the sort of God who does this sort of thing. Amen.